All right, this morning uh, I would like you to open your Bibles to the book of Ezra. Ezra. We're going to get to Revelation in a moment. But I want to begin in Ezra uh, 5, and then uh, we'll go back to Revelation by way of the Old Testament prophet Haggai. A little bit different this morning. Ezra is in the Bible as a record of how God brought Israel back from their captivity in Babylon. The first chapter talks about the Lord stirring up the Persian king, Cyrus, to send these people back. Chapter 2, we are told that nearly 50,000 of those people took up the king's offer and went back, which was just a drop in the bucket, of course, compared to the size of the nation before the captivity. In chapter 3, verse 8, in the second year of their coming back, they commenced rebuilding the temple. As you know, they encountered some very heavy opposition to that until eventually they even received uh, orders from the king uh, that they stop. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 24, it says, Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. That happened about 536 B.C. But the end of the verse says, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And that was in 520 B.C. In other words, you've got a full 16 years of no work in rebuilding the house of God. However, There was some building going on because the people were still busy building their own homes and resettling the land and replowing and sowing uh, fields and really reestablishing a whole civilization along with the uh, infrastructure of a government. And yet the temple was not being built. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah the son of Iddo, prophets uh, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, rose up and began to build the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, With that context in mind, I want you to turn to the prophecy of Haggai. Haggai, which is the third last book in your Old Testament. Haggai is uh, obviously the prophet Haggai, and uh, he delivered four messages, four messages uh, all about uh, the same initial year of 520 B.C. We know that because they're all uh, dated in the book. And God used these messages to stir up his people to build his house. Now, one of the excuses that the people used in not building the temple was that they simply didn't have the resources and there wasn't enough money to do this project. So God had to deal with them about that in chapter 1 because the fact was they did have uh, the resources, but they just preferred using it on their own homes. So essentially, God was saying to them, look, before you build your own houses with all the latest improvements and technology, you know, my house should have the priority. And you shouldn't be making those kinds of excuses for not sacrificially building my house when you're so quick 
to take care of your own dwelling places. But in addition to that, in chapter 2, God speaks to them about the future as a way of motivating them. I want to begin in verse 6. Well, thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, sea and dry land. I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. In other words, God is motivating them to rebuild their temple because one of the problems they had was discouragement when they compared Solomon's temple to the one that they were rebuilding. Ezra tells us that when the foundation was laid uh, for that second temple, the old men wept because they were comparing it uh, with the glory of Solomon's temple, the one that was uh, destroyed. By comparison, what they were doing just appeared to be so uh, small and insignificant and plain. Well, that was discouraging. It was blocking them from continuing to build. So God encourages them by telling them about a future temple, one that is going to be greater than any former temple. I mean, uh, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says Lord of hosts. Now, clearly, uh, what he's doing is pointing far ahead to the millennial temple. We know that because verse 7 refers to God shaking all the nations and they're coming with all their wealth to worship, just as the last chapter of Zechariah describes about the millennial temple. And God will fill that house with glory, and the glory will be the glory of his own Messiah, who is called here the desire of of all nations, who will reign himself right there in Jerusalem. As a preparation for what we're going to see in Revelation today, I'm really interested in verse 6, which speaks of the fact that before the building of that millennial temple and the glory that's going to be in it, God says he's going to shake the heaven and the earth. Not just the dry part, but the sea and the dry land. God says, I will shake them. Now, turn to Revelation 16, where we are today. We're now coming in Revelation 16 to the end of the tribulation judgments. This conclusion consists of seven plagues that are poured out systematically from bowls by seven angels. Pointing to chapter 15, verse 1, they are the last of God's plagues upon the earth during that seven-year period of time because in them the wrath of God is finished. We've worked through the first six of these bold judgments, and I just want to recapture the big picture before we move on. So first of all, you remember, God is going to afflict mankind with awful, painful sores. And then all the oceans of the world are going to be turned to blood. And every living creature in the seas will die. Although people may see that 
and anticipate that the fresh water sources will still be available when the third bowl judgment is poured out. It touches all of the fresh water, and it also turns to blood. Imagine a globe, and in your mind's eye, just envision you know, the satellite pictures that you see of this beautiful blue shining ball that hangs out there in space, and yet all of that blue has now turned to red. All of it. And then when there's no fresh water to be had, God is going to burn these people with a nearly unbearable heat. In fact, they're going to blaspheme God and chew on their tongues because of the pain of the heat. Then God will shut out all the lights. They'll be left in their pain with their sores, no water, sitting in the dark. And then it says God will dry out the entire Euphrates River to make way for an invasion of the land of Israel by the kings of the east, whoever they are. Because the scripture tells us in verse 16 that all the nations will be gathered together to a place that is called Har-Mageddon. You may remember that this wording refers to the city of Megiddo and the Har is the hill or the mountain of Megiddo. God is going to gather them into the Jezreel Valley, which is right below uh, the hill of Megiddo. Now, let's pick up in verse 17. Then the seventh, the last angel, poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. There were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, about 45 kilos. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And what this passage describes is what Haggai is predicting. This is the final shaking of heaven and earth. Not just the dry land, but the sea also. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of this final shaking of heaven and earth. First of all, in verse 18, when it refers to flashes of lightning and thunder, it's almost like a fanfare, isn't it? It's a fearful fanfare that takes place in the heavens or in the air. The shaking of the heavens, you might say. Now, our English word thunder is derived from the name of a Norse god, the ancient pagan deity known as Thor. Uh, Of course, his name has become popular today in association with a well-known Australian actor. A friend of mine has a dog named Thor. But in ancient mythology, Thor was betrayed as a red-bearded man of immense strength, unlike Pastor Brian. (laughs) 
His chief ability was the forging of thunderbolts. We actually get our word Thursday from the name of this God. However, that's all pagan mythology. In the book of Job, when God finally comes and he questions Job about various things and whether he can explain this or that, in chapter 38, verse 25, God asks him, who has made a path for the thunderbolt? Who does that? Who opens a space in the atmosphere for thunderbolts? It's certainly not Thor. It's Jehovah. In fact, that language is even scientifically accurate because thunder, as you know, is the sharp rumbling sound that accompanies lightning. And what happens uh, is that you have these electrons in certain clouds that are moving from point to point with fantastic speed. You can't see them move, but it's so fast that the speed generates heat and electricity and light. We call it lightning. Literally, it's creating electron paths which are being cut through the atmosphere, and the heating and expansion of the air around them goes through many, many layers at different temperatures, and that's what creates the boom of thunder, which literally is shaking the air. Now, imagine something like that on a global scale. That's what's being described here. Of course, uh, you know when we hear thunder and lightning, we anticipate that what's going to follow very quickly Rain. And there was a time early in the world's history when the fountains of the deep broke up and the heavens unloosed themselves and the water poured upon the earth in enormous quantities, destroying every living thing that breathed on the globe, except for those, of course, who survived on the ark. Well, at the end of the tribulation, when there's this universal uh, booming of thunder and flashes of lightning and a fearful atmosphere in the heavens, you'd really expect that another universal flood would flow. But remember, God has promised He would never again destroy the earth in that way. The next time you see a beautiful rainbow in the sky, you want to remember that that that's God's promise. As clearly as if He wrote it with His own finger, that I will not destroy you again by water And yet, God is going to destroy the earth. Because while this heavenly fanfare may not be announcing a universal flood, it is announcing what we see in verses 18 to 20, an earthquake. Last part of verse 18 says, there was a great earthquake. The earth begins to shake. And the scale of this earthquake is unprecedented. It says such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. It was mighty and great. Now the magnitude and power of earthquakes is measured by the amount of energy that they release. For example, if they assign the number 7 on the Richter scale to an earthquake, it's a quake, they say, that can be felt at a distance of about 100 kilometers. And it's the equivalent of setting off 32 million tons of TNT. They say that this will release enough energy to heat New York City for one year. They could harness that kind of thing. There was a quake like that that struck Kobe, Japan on January the 17th, 1995. 5.46 in the morning, an earthquake with a magnitude of 7 
lasted just 20 seconds. Think about that. When it was over, more than 5,000 people were dead. 30,000 were injured. Nearly a quarter of a million people lost their homes. It did $150 billion of damage. It's a very expensive 20 seconds. The largest earthquake ever recorded instrumentally was about 9.5 on the Richter scale. Uh, when you have an earthquake that measures 9, they say that this is an earthquake that can be felt uh, up to a distance of 1,000 kilometers. And this one occurred about 160 k's off the western coast of Chile on May the 22nd, 1960. It's known as the Great Chilean Earthquake. And what happened was they say that a piece of the Pacific Ocean floor about the size of California slipped about 15 meters down. And the result was the largest recorded earthquake in history. It created landslides in Chile so enormous that it changed the course of rivers, it made brand new lakes, it buried whole towns, you had tsunami waves rocketing throughout the whole Pacific. Uh, in Hawaii, nearly 10,000 kilometers away, a wave of water traveled that distance. When it arrived in Hawaii, it was 10.7 meters tall. For many, many hours, the whole Pacific rocked back and forth. It's like when you take a, a cup of coffee upstairs that's too full and you can't keep it from rocking and spilling from side to side. The whole Pacific Ocean was like that. They had 25-meter waves that affected Japan, the Philippines, New Zealand, and Australia. Now, what will happen to the earth when God sends an earthquake such as has never been recorded, never happened in history, and it shakes the whole earth and the sea? Clearly, this is a universal earthquake and the final great shaking of this globe. The effects of this are detailed in verses 19 to 20. If you take, just take a little time to think about them, it really is incredible. Look at verse 19. Now, the great city was divided into three parts. Let's pause on that for a moment. What is this great city? Well, we know from chapter 14, verse 8, and chapter 17, verse 18, that Babylon is called the great. And many people believe that this is a reference to Babylon. Let's just continue reading the verse. The great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So just reading that off the bat, I just want to point out that in the immediate context, the great city does seem to be something distinguished from the cities of the nations and even from Babylon herself. It's also important to point out that back in chapter 11, verse 8, at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the two witnesses are in Jerusalem, God predicts that after their death, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, and that city is clearly identified as Jerusalem. I'm going to take the position that the great city in chapter 16, verse 19, is the city of Jerusalem. And I want to trace this idea just for a little bit in our Old Testament. 
because there's great significance in this being Jerusalem. So turn, if you will, to the book of Amos. I want to look at two more Old Testament prophets with you. Amos, and if you look at the very first verse of the book, it actually refers to a notorious earthquake. Amos 1.1. This dates the opening of Amos' ministry, and it dates it in terms of this earthquake. It says, The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Look at this. Two years before the earthquake. We prophesied in the days of those two kings, just two years before some earthquake, that evidently went down in history as significant enough to be a time marker for that nation. Now the fact is, Israel is particularly susceptible to earthquakes. And when we were there, uh, those of you who came on the tour with me, the guide mentioned several times at certain sites that the ancient ruins we were looking at were the result of an earthquake. Beth Shean was one of them, and those of you who were there may recall the huge pillars that had fallen down on the street from the earthquake. Uh, in fact, after the building of the second temple, when the people had returned from uh, Babylon, the high priest would pray a prayer every Yom Kippur, uh, and it included a special request for the people living in Jerusalem that they should be spared the fate of having their houses become their graves. Uh, in recent times, uh, they've actually done quite a lot of geological studies in Israel. And it's well known that the country, and Jerusalem in particular, is ripe for a major earthquake. As far as they can tell, there have been about six major ones in the last thousand years. And their big concern is the discovery that in the Earth's crust, there's a fault line that runs nearly 5,000 kilometers from Syria, which is just above Israel, all the way down to Mozambique in the southern part of South Africa, which is right where the tectonic plates of Europe, Asia, and Africa all come together and grind against each other. In other words, that rift runs right down the Jordan Valley through the Dead Sea. I got a picture. Got my picture. There you go. That's the, that's the, the sound tests they've done of the green dots. You can see how it runs right down uh, through the, uh, the Jordan Valley there. In addition to that, as you can see, about 55 kilometers northeast of Jerusalem, there's another fault line. And that one runs from the Mediterranean at Haifa, which is just west of the Sea of Galilee there. Uh, it goes right across the Jordan Valley east to west. What you have is Jerusalem basically sitting at the intersection of two terrific faults in the Earth's crust like the prediction that people have been making for many years that someday a major part of California is going to drop off into the ocean because it sits right there on the San Andreas fault line. Well, that's what they're saying about Israel. Well, the fact is God talks about that eventuality. So now I want you to turn to Zechariah as the other Old Testament prophet we need to know. Zechariah. Zechariah 12 to 14 are three of the most important Old Testament prophetic passages when it comes to Israel's future. 
told in these chapters that God will one day gather all the nations of the world against Jerusalem. See that in chapter 12, verse 3. And that's exactly what Revelation 16 is predicting when it talks about them coming to that valley near the hill of Megiddo. But when they arrive, God's going to do something unusual, even in the topography of the land. Look at chapter 14 and verse 2. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. And initially, they're going to prevail. The city will be taken. The houses rifled. The women ravished. Sounds a lot like the Taliban overtaking Afghanistan not that long ago, doesn't it? Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, our tour group stood there some time ago. That mount towers about 90 meters above the highest point in Jerusalem. And those who were there, you may recall the steep walk we had to do to go down into the valley. So all the tour buses park at the top, and then uh, you can stand there. You get some wonderful pictures of Jerusalem. In fact, I got a picture. We'll show up here on the screen. That's what it looks like from the lookout point. Great place to take pictures. Wonderful. You can see this big valley between you and the Temple Mount that's full of all, the, all these graves. It made a cemetery out of it. And, um, and then you can see the Islamic mosques in the, in the temple uh, with the big golden dome, uh, which is the biggest mosque. It really stands out. Well, in, in a future day, Jesus' feet will also stand on that mount, which is where he once stood before. Uh, probably most notably when he wept over Jerusalem before his crucifixion. That mount is specified in Zechariah as the one which faces Jerusalem on the east. Can anything be more specific than that? And after working through 16 chapters of Revelation, I do hope you don't want to still spiritualize things like that. You've got a specific geographical location. Mount of Olives, coupled with a second reference, it faces Jerusalem. You got another reference, uh, a compass reference. It's on the east. So if you were God and you were trying to say it literally, I mean, could, is there anything else you could say to make it more literal than that? Well, at that location, this is what's going to happen. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, not from north to south, but east to west. In other words, starting on the side facing Jerusalem, running towards the Jordan River in the west, east, or east, it's going to be split, right? Uh, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. So God is going to do this, he says in verse 5, in order to provide a means for the remnant in Israel to take flight. Says, then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azel. Now that is an un unidentified place in Scripture, but obviously it's somewhere towards the Jordan River. Yes, you shall flee, and now look at this, as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Well, that's the earthquake that mentioned in Amos 1.1, which was, was notorious that people used as a date reference. Like today when we, you know, we date things by 
You know, this happened three years after 9-11 or six months after 9-11, whatever. It's exactly what they were doing in ancient Israel. In other words, in the history of Israel, that earthquake was a mile marker because it was so memorable, so bad. Everybody knew this. Well, just as people fled then, they're going to flee in the future because there's going to be another great shaking and it's going to touch this region of Jerusalem to such an extent that the Mount of Olives will be split. Now look at the end of verse 5. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Which is what Revelation 19 is describing when he comes on a white horse with the armies of heaven and he deals with the armies that are gathered in the valley of Jezreel. Now I'm just pointing this out in order to say that Haggai predicts a universal earthquake and Zechariah predicts how it's going to affect the great city Jerusalem. And it tells us that one reason is simply to provide a means of flight for those who have survived in Jerusalem at that time. Now, go back to Revelation 16. When this earthquake strikes the earth, the Scripture describes the second effect that, again, is so general you don't pause for a moment and just fill it out factually and imaginatively, you're missing the whole point. In verse 19, it almost casually says, well, and the cities of the nations fell. Now, the word for nations there is the word for Gentile. So this is not talking about Jerusalem or God's people, but it is talking about all of those cities that the armies of the earth have left behind to go to Armageddon. Cities where the women and children would be located just says that those cities will fall down. Now, you think, you think of what would happen if that happened today. The most populous city in the world right now is which city? Anybody? Nope. Not New York. Tokyo. Tokyo. 37.4 million people, if you can imagine that. There are many cities with over 20 million people. Dubai, Shanghai, Mexico City, Beijing, Mumbai. There are nine of those cities in the world. There are over 550 cities with over a million people in them, including Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide. (laughs) Over 56% of the world's population lives in cities today. 86.2% of Australians live in their cities. 83.6% of Americans live in their city. In Argentina, shout out to the South Americans, and in Argentina, 90% of the population lives in their cities. 40% Buenos Aires alone. Imagine that. Now, of course, the first years of the tribulation will decimate uh, the world's population already, but there's still going to be untold millions of people remaining in those cities. What will it be like when God takes the whole earth on which those cities are standing and shakes it like a man might shake a table where the kids have just built a house with building blocks and he just grips the table and he shakes the thing and it just crumbles flat. Think of the cities of the world, all of their tall buildings just falling down like you see in one of those end of the world movies. Now, here's the third effect in verse 19. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. 
What does that mean? Well, I'm going to skip over that one. Because one-eighth of the book of Revelation is going to describe that very line, and it's coming in the next two chapters. 17 and 18, the woman riding the beast. Who is that? Big question. We'll tackle that in great detail when we get there, which means I'm leaving this verse until that point. But I am interested in what it says in verse 20. Then every island fled away. What does that mean? Well, again, think of what we know about the effect of earthquakes. They strike, and the oceans rise up in these gigantic waves. So what do you think it means when it says the islands flee away? Well, envision, for example, the Philippines, the 7,000 islands, and they're just covered in water as if they all ran away. What about the 17,000 islands in Indonesia covered by a great wall of water? On December the 26, 2004, an earthquake measuring 9.1 on the Richter scale hit Sumatra, and uh, the resulting tsunami, the whole thing ended up killing uh, 230,000 people, most of them by the tsunami. And uh, they had casualties as far away as India and Sri Lanka, South Africa. That's 8,000 kilometers from the epicenter. You can imagine islands fleeing away. And then it says the mountains were not found. So every mountain somehow is flattened when this thing strikes. There could not be any more major change in the topography of the whole globe when God strikes the earth with this quake. How could anybody live through that? Well, of course, uh, we know the armies at Armageddon will survive because Jesus will come and deal with them himself. But the rest of the world has to deal with something that is just extremely bizarre. When it's the most inconceivable science fiction you've ever heard of. Except, horror of horrors, not CGI. Not a man-made fantasy. Not an alien invasion put out as the latest blockbuster. All true. And if that were not enough, verse 21 adds the fall of huge hailstones. When storms come over Sydney, you know, we uh, occasionally experience hail, and sometimes it's quite large. You know, orange size was the most recent one. Uh, but what, it, what is it going to be like when God sends hailstones weighing a talent, 45 kilos, on a broken earth, on a crushed humanity? And these chunks of ice are plummeting thousands of meters in the sky and striking the earth and just leaving big pockmarks everywhere. Isn't it significant that the end of verse 21 says that men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great? In other words, this one is singled out rather than the thunder and the lightning and even the quake itself. It's particularly devastating to mankind. But just just think of it all happening. All this heavenly fanfare, lightning everywhere, accompanied by this this booming thunder that uh, just deafens you. The whole atmosphere is shaking and reverberating, and then the whole earth is just shaken, broken in half. Islands sink underwater. Mountains cave in. All the buildings of the cities tumble down. Then perhaps you've got this moment of silence where you hear the terrible sound of giant ice balls falling from the sky. That's hailstones. 
think of how panicked you feel when you hear that today and you think about your car that's parked outside the garage. So these will be huge hailstones. Those are going to dent the paintwork. Things are going to go right through your car. And it's going to hit your house, going to go through your roof, going to land on your bed. Uh, without question, this is the finality of God bringing all of His judgment to a conclusion. And now as we come to the end of this message, I want you to turn to one more passage, Hebrews 12. Because the writer of Hebrews actually refers back to the words of Haggai that we began the message with, and he makes an application for believers. I love this. One of the most difficult things I found when preaching Revelation is the search for fresh applications. Uh, when you're dealing with uh, you know, prophetic passages like this, it's difficult uh, you know, week after week to find any kind of direct challenge or exhortation or comfort, something that's for today, that for Christians. I'm a little jealous that Pastor Paul's doing Proverbs. It's so intensely practical by comparison. This is what makes it difficult to preach from Revelation. So I find it fascinating, beginning in verse 25, that the writer takes this future event and he applies it as he does. He says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Well, who's speaking? Listen to how the book began. God, who at various times and in various manners spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by His Son. So again, do not refuse Him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused Him who spoke on earth, and in the context of verses 18 to 24, this is referring to the time when the people of God were at Mount Sinai, and you remember the whole mountain shook before them. Okay? Um, so, uh, I just lost my place, didn't I? <laughs> So these people didn't escape when God warned them on earth at that time. All right, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now He has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. That's referring to Haggai 2.6 and pointing far ahead to Revelation 16 passage we were just looking at. And he says, now this expression, this expression yet once more, okay, this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as the things that are made. And what he's saying is the creation can be shaken because it was made. It has a beginning. It can be removed. Mountains can be flattened. Islands can disappear. So that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. And of course, there are things that cannot be shaken. Because they're eternal. For example, the throne of God cannot be shaken. The promises of God cannot be shaken. The people of God cannot be finally shaken or destroyed. Isn't that great? Now that being the case, verse 28 Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, the kingdom of heaven, let us have grace or gratitude. That's another translation. This word shows up six times. Four times it refers to gratitude, but it could also be grace in this context. It could be either one. Let's, let us show gratitude or let us receive grace by which we may serve God acceptably 
with reverence and godly fear. And it may be that showing gratitude to God is the way I think this should be translated because chapter 13, verse 15 talks about offering the sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. I really think a better translation is let us show gratitude by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Now, that passage in mind, what are we supposed to take away from Revelation 16 and this last plague? Well, in addition to understanding more about the future, we're all interested in. According to this verse, we should come away with gratitude, offering an acceptable service to God with this sense of reverence and godly fear or all. Why? Well, it's because when you consider what God is doing, when He shakes the heavens and the earth, and you think about all those things that are made being removed by the power of His judgment, while the things that are eternal remain, when you think about what we have just considered in this last bold judgment, it should bring to your mind the fact that our God is a consuming fire and that is a reason to be thankful because we are part of what remains by the grace and the mercy of God I mean, we are not consumed by his fire as a result of all our gratitude for what God has done for us by his grace all right now you serve the Lord with all reverence and godly fear now, ours is a great and awesome God, don't you agree? I mean, just by just thinking the thought, I mean, he doesn't have to extend his hand. He doesn't have to speak a word. By the sheer force of his will, at a point in time, this whole globe will shake and collapse in on itself. Ours is a great and mighty God. And since this is a case, when Haggai 2.6 is fulfilled and God shakes the earth and the heavens for the last time, let us show gratitude to Him. Let us offer Him an acceptable service. This week, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, let us offer God an acceptable service to Him this week. With reverence and godly fear is your God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, we do come to You and we want to end this service with an expression of our thanks. That You have not consumed us in Your wrath. You've enabled Your wrath to fall on Your Son for all who will believe. What a blessedness to know that we are safe eternally. Father, as we look ahead and we read about these events to come, how comforting to know that we will be under Your wing in the presence of Your very Son, praising Him for all eternity. Father, bless Your people. Encourage our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.